If you've got your copy of scripture, if you'll turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 12. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about authentic faith. Because I think that's what all of us really want to have is an authentic faith in Jesus. One where we are who he created us to be. We live the way that he wants us to live. And so we're going to look at different aspects of that over the next couple of weeks. This first one, though, is I don't know if you've ever felt this way. But have you ever been confused about how to live the Christian life? There have been so many times in my walk with Jesus where I kind of get to a place and I get stuck or I hear someone teaching and it's different than what I knew before and I get stuck. I just feel like that there's so much information that, that we just kind of pour out uh, on Christians that sometimes it's difficult to know what God wants from us. And so today what we're going to hear, we're going to hear Jesus kind of cut through all the noise. Everybody has an opinion on what you should look like as a Christian, how you should live as a Christian, what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And here's my advice. I think we need to stop listening to all those voices and start listening to Jesus. Because not all the time are the voices telling us what Jesus does. And one of the things, and I, I think it's just because I've gotten older, one of the things that I'm realizing in my life is that for a lot of years, I tried to make Christianity really, really difficult. I tried to add on all this stuff to the simple, pure word of Jesus. And I need to add on all these things. And what I want to do today is I want to tear down those stuff and get back to the simplicity of what Jesus tells us to do and how he tells us to live. Now we're going to start in verse 28. We're going to jump in in the middle of a conversation that's happening. And so I'm going to give you some context before we read. The Pharisees have come and they're trying to trip up Jesus. They're trying to make, him, make it seem like he doesn't know what he's talking about. And so they ask him a question. They ask him a very deep philosophical, theological question. And they come to him and here's what they say. All right, Jesus, let's say somebody marries a woman and that guy dies. And she marries his brother and he dies and then marries another brother and he dies and marries another brother and he dies. Who's she married to in the resurrection? I mean, because that's the most important thing to know, right? I mean, that, that really helps us live out our faith with God. But that's the question that they had. And Jesus answers them. Here's what he says. Well, you've not read the scripture because angels don't marry and give in marriage. There's no marriage in heaven. So you've missed the whole point. And there was a guy in the crowd that heard this and was moved to ask a question. And I want you to hear what he has to say. Look at verse 28. One of the scribes came, heard them arguing and recognizing that Jesus had answered them well. He asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to Jesus, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him and to love him with all our heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one, one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. 
This guy is there and Jesus has been dealing with this really weird question about, you know, who's right, who's wrong. And the way that he answered these people kind of spurred this guy to answer a question. And I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever asked a question before and kind of put yourself out there, but that guy was taking a risk. He was a scribe. He was kind of the tribe of the people of the Pharisees. He was supposed to be on their team. But the way that Jesus answered his question, answered their question, kind of caused him to ask one on his own. Now, it's funny, I, I've been in situations where people have asked questions and I've even asked questions that caused it, nobody to answer, ask any questions after that. I remember I was in college and we had this well-known pastor coming and he had just written a book and I was super excited for him to come because I wanted to ask a question to show him and everybody else that I knew exactly what he was talking about. And so I get up and I ask a really stupid question. This guy, unlike Jesus, did not treat me well, did not answer my question. Here's what he said. Um, that's in my book. You can buy it and read it for yourself. Now, do you think anybody asked any questions after that? No, that was the point. Jesus was asked a really stupid question that had nothing to do with what it meant to love God and to follow God and to know God, but he answered. And he answered in a way where this man stands up and here's the question he asks. Which commandment is foremost of all? What he's asking Jesus is this. Jesus, what should we be focusing on? What do you really want us focusing on? What is really important to you? That's what the Pharisees should have been asking, but they weren't. They were trying to trip him up. They were trying to trick him. And this man moved by Jesus' compassion and answer, he just kind of pops up in the middle of the crowd and says, hey, Jesus, what should we be focusing on? I really would have liked to have been that guy in the crowd. I really would have liked to have been that guy who had been moved by Jesus to ask that question because honestly, that's the question I've been asking most of my life. Jesus, what do you want us focusing on? Jesus, what, what do you want us to do? Now, the guy only knew how to ask it in one way. He asked it, what, what is the greatest commandment? Because he was a good Jew and for him, the only thing he understood was the law. And so he's basically saying, which law can I follow that gets me the closest to you, the closest to God, the closest to the kingdom? And then Jesus does what he always does, is he gave him more than what he asked for. Remember, he asked for one and Jesus gave him two. But this guy's asking because in the Jewish tradition, God gave us the Ten Commandments, but the, the Jews decided that it's not good enough to have Ten Commandments. we got to make sure that we don't get close to breaking the Ten Commandments. So they added 613 commandments on top of the Ten. They heaped all of this law and all of this regulation and all of these things to ensure that we were good people. In fact, here's, here's how they broke them down. They had uh, two, 365 negative commands and 248 positive. What that means is the don't do's were 365s and those that we should, the should do's were 248. They talked about light commandments and heavy commandments. There were some that didn't put as much burden on you. She so didn't need to worry about those. And there were some that were heavy and that you needed to be taken care of. And here's what the guy is saying. He says, Jesus, I think we're missing the point. Which one? 
out of all the 613, which one? So Jesus says, let me answer that question for you. Love the Lord your God. He said the greatest thing in verse 29, he says, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is our Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, Jesus is repeating Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5. That's in the Old Testament, uh, something that was given to them by Moses. It was called the Shema. It was something that every family was supposed to memorize and learn. It was something they were supposed to teach to their children. This was the kind of the, the motto. This was the foundation. This is the way that we lived our life. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, is one, and he is our God. And so Jesus draws that back to the forefront and he says, listen, what's most important? What's most important is not all the, 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 the tedious ins and outs, the rules, the regulations. There's one thing that's important and it's to love God, to love him. And Jesus is making clear and he's wiping off anything else in existence. And here's what he says, that there is only one God to love only one God to love. The people that Jesus was dealing with that day, much like the people that Moses was dealing with in his day when he presented this to them, and much like what we deal with today, there's lots of things out there competing for our attention. There's lots of people and there's lots of things and there's lots of stuff that are vying for first place in our life. And Jesus just wipes that all off and he sets God on the center pedestal and he says, there is only one God to love. Our God is unique. Our God is amazing. Our God is powerful and wonderful. And therefore there's no one that stacks up to him. And so here's what he says. If you want to know what you need to focus on, if you want to know what you're missing out, if you want to know what's most important, here it is. Love God. Love God. Now, it's funny that Jesus doesn't talk about all these different things, but if you go back into Deuteronomy chapter 6 and you go right after, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, Moses, through the leadership of the Holy Spirit, gives different ways of how we can love God. And so Jesus is assuming they understand that and they know that because they've memorized that. They've just forgotten that as the importance of their life. And so here's what he says, love God. Now that sounds simple, doesn't it? Love God. But what does that mean? Well, in Deuteronomy 6, he gives us some ideas of what it means. It means that we love God by obeying him all of our life. Deuteronomy 6.2 tells us that we are to obey all of his commandments. We're to obey all of his statutes. In fact, it says that it should consume our entire life when we're standing up, when we're sitting down, when we're walking, when we're talking, when we're eating, when we're sleeping. Everything is about loving God and following what he has said. So here's what he's saying. Listen, it's important. The most important thing is to love God. And the way you love him is to obey him all of your life. He also tells us in Deuteronomy 6 that we love God by teaching our kids to love God. 
Deuteronomy 6, it says that it, parents, it is your responsibility to take what you know to be true about God, that he is one, that he is our God. There is no other God beside him. You're to take that truth and wherever you go, whether you're walking and you're going and you're sitting down, you're eating dinner, it is your responsibility to take that truth and share it with your children. Here's what he says. If you really wanna love God, and that's really the most important thing in your life, and you're gonna obey him all of your life, then one of the things that you need to do is to have a relationship with God that transfers from you to your children. That you pass down your love for God. He tells us in Deuteronomy 6 that we love God by remembering his work in our lives. In Deuteronomy 6.12 it says to remember, remember that God brought you out of Egypt. Remember that God has rescued you. Remember that God has led you. Remember that God has provided for you. Remember that he's gonna take you to a promised land flowing with milk and honey. When you get there and you get the blessings that God gives you, do not forget him. Do not forget how you got there. Do not forget how you got all the things that you got. You're there by the grace of God and the power of God. We love God best and we love God most when we remember his work in our life. And the way that we remember that is when stuff happens, we go back and go, yeah, didn't God deliver us from something like this before? Hasn't God worked in our life before? Hasn't God done this? And don't you remember when God did that? He says, love the Lord your God. And one of the ways we love God is we love God by not seeking out another God. Deuteronomy 6.14, Moses tells the people and Jesus is telling that group and us today that we have to remember that when things go good in our life, it's easy for us to find somebody else to worship. He says, when you get to the promised land and you get houses you didn't build and you get vineyards that you didn't plant and you get wells that you didn't dig and you have all these blessings, do not forget me and go to another God. And here's the sad reality of that story. You know what happened three seconds after they got in the promised land? They forgot God. And they went to other gods. Isn't it funny how quickly we do the same thing? We like to look at people in the Old Testament and say, man, how, how did you do that? How did, how did you do that after everything that God has done in your life? How did you do that? Well, the same question applies to us. Three seconds after God delivers and God provides and God protects, we just go right away and find other things to put in his place. So Jesus says, the most important thing is to love God. Now, we look at this and we say, okay, well, that's a definition of what love looks like. I get that. But how do we do it? How do we love God? Look at what he tells us in verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He says... The only way that we can do the things that God's asked us to do and, and given us the way to love him is to love him with all that we are. Do you notice that all is repeated four times? There's a reason for that. 
is trying to help the people of that day and trying to help us today to understand that God doesn't want a part of you. God wants all of you. God doesn't want pieces of your life. He wants all of your life. There's no place of your life that you can hold on for yourself. Everything must be surrendered to him if you're really going to love him. He says, love him with all your heart. The concept of heart in the Bible is basically the center of who we are, the real us. Deep, deep, deep down inside the, the stuff that we don't show anybody or we don't talk to anybody, who we really, really are. And so he goes there first. I want you to love me with who you really are. Isn't that amazing? Who else wants that in our life? Very few people really want the real us, right? Very people do we give the real us to. And here's what God is saying. I want the real you. I want deep, deep down inside you, the real you that you hide from everybody else. You don't hide from me because I want that. I want you to love me with that. He says, our soul. Our soul is that spiritual life inside of us. All of us have a spiritual nature. The soul is the image of God, if you want to say. It's that, it's that relationship and personality and all those kind of things that make us who we are. It's the spiritual reality of us. And here's what he's saying. I want you to turn that spirit over to me. I want you to love me with your spirit. Your mind. This is an easy one for a lot of us because this is where we're comfortable when we hear mind, we think knowledge. The more we know about God, the more facts that we jam inside of our head, the better. Okay. But God wants something more. He's asking that it's not just intelligence that he wants, it's a change of mind. It's a surrender of our will. And he says, I want you to love me with all your strength. Strength is effort. It's a choice. I'm willing to make the effort and put in the choice to love you. And so sometimes when we think about this, we think, okay, well, that's nice, but that's kind of vague. How do we love God? Well, we love God the way that we would love our spouse. Now, I hope this isn't shocking to you, but I need to say this. You understand that God is a person, not a proposition. What I mean by that is that God is not a proposition of truth. He's not just facts. He is a real person. And when God comes to us and he talks about us loving him with all of who we are, he wants a relationship with us. It's not enough just to have facts. How crazy would it be if we treated our spouses the way we treat God? I know a lot about my wife. I don't spend any time with her. I don't talk to her. I don't listen to her. I don't engage in conversation with her and want to know how she thinks about things or what she feels about things. But listen, if you ask me, I can rattle off all the important facts. I know when she was born. I know where she was born. I know what schools that she went to. I know all the things that she likes and she dislikes, but I don't know her. 
Jesus is cutting through the noise. And here's what he's saying to us. God doesn't want you to put more facts in your head. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you. He wants to know you. And that's how we love him like a person. (laughs) This is where I've struggled so much in my life. I've been very comfortable with facts. I'm a facts person. I love facts. I have random facts. If you want to sit down, I can regale you with all the stupid facts you want to know about Batman. I know everything there is to know about Star Wars. And I can tell you that I I watch documentaries for no reason at all. I watched a documentary recently on General So's chicken. Why? Because I like facts. By the way, it's not really a thing. It was made up for Americans. Chinese people don't eat it. So just so you know. I love facts. But what has stopped me so much in my relationship with God is I just fact, 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 and God wants relationship. What Jesus is saying, the most important thing is, have you experienced God? Have you experienced his love? Has his love transformed you? Are you now in a relationship with him? See, the guys that asked the question previous to this guy were just spouting off facts. Here's what we know. What do you know? Let me see if what I know is more than what you know. How much of Christian relationship is like that? We get together and we love to spout off the stuff that we know. And we want to show off that we know more than somebody else. And here's what Jesus says. He cuts through the noise and says, it's not about facts. It's about relationship. Love God. How do you have a relationship with God? Well, here's some questions that I would like to give you. They're in your, they're going to be on the screen. You can write them down if you want. They're going to be uncomfortable because this isn't the way that we always like to look, engage our relationship with God. But we do it for every other relationship. Question one. Does anything or anyone compete for your love for God? Does anything or anyone compete for your love for God? Think about how we apply that in our relationships. We don't let anything take the place of our spouse. We don't let anything stand where they should stand. We don't allow anything to fight for our love for the one that we should love the most. We do it with our kids too, right? But it's so funny because we're so fact-based and we think it's just information-based that we put all of this mess in front of God and think nothing's competing for my time or attention. Ask yourself the question, is there anything in my life Is there anyone in my life that competes for my love for God? You got to answer that question for yourself. And let me just be honest, and I'm going to share some more in just a second, but let me just be honest. I didn't do well with a lot of these questions. Because there are things that compete. There are things that compete for my love keep compete for my attention, to compete for the centerpiece and the center place of my heart. How about this one? 
Do I spend time with God? Radical thing happened in my life when I met my wife. We were in seminary. It was the night before school starts. They, had a, they, they called it the back to school fair. And we would go and, and churches would be there and companies would be there and banks would be there. You could do sort of everything you need to do in your life. And I was working for the church that I was uh, at and I was at the fair and I was there to try to recruit students to come to church. And then I saw her. And I forgot my responsibilities for the rest of the night. I just honed in on Heather. I was going to make sure Heather came to our church. But here's the radical thing that happened in my life. All of a sudden, everything in my life became about spending time with her. I would skip things that used to be important. I stopped hanging out with people because she was important. I went to coffee shops and I hate coffee. I can't, I can't drink it. I, I've tried every way possible, and I, but I went. I went because she loved coffee and I spent time with her and I sipped that nasty stuff the entire time we were there. Changed everything. It changed everything because I wanted a relationship with her. I wanted to know her and I wanted her to know me and I, I was willing to do whatever I needed to do to make that happen. Do you spend time with God that way? Has your relationship with God transformed you in that way? Listen, I'm gonna be honest. I wish, I wish that I craved for time with God the way that I crave for time with Heather. There's something I've found to be true both in my marriage relationship and in my spiritual relationship. Here's what I found to be true. The times when I have the most problems in my marriage is the times that I've spent the least amount of time with my wife. It's funny how every time we start to bicker or we have problems or there's something going on and I try to figure out, like rack my brain, why are we having problems? I'm like, oh yeah, I haven't seen you in like two weeks. I've had funerals and I've had this and I've had that and I've had meetings and I haven't been home and I haven't spent time. We haven't sat down and actually talked. And you know what's so funny? You know how the problems get fixed? You know how everything gets changed? It's just funny. I spend time with her and I talk to her and all of a sudden all that stuff goes away. And here's a little secret. As I've seen that in my marriage, I also see that in my spiritual relationship with God when I get frustrated and fearful and bitter and miserable and broken and shamed and fearful and doubting. And I start to go, God, I don't understand why this is happening. And then all of a sudden it dawns on me. I haven't spent any time with him. I haven't sat down and talked to him. And then here's the thing. I sit down and I read his word and I begin to pray and all that nonsense begins to go away because I'm spending time with him. You can love God. Don't, make people, don't let people tell you that it's difficult and don't let them tell you that there's this entire system that you have to adopt and there's all these rules. It's simple. God wants relationship. God wants you. Here's something that I still can't get over. That the creator of the universe wants to spend time with me. 
that the creator of the universe wants to spend time with you. And this is even crazier. That when he spends time with you, it is you get his complete and undivided attention. And he can give his complete and undivided attention attention to every person who is on the earth at this moment. And we all have his full and undivided attention. He's not hurried. He's not rushing. He doesn't have things he has to get to because he's got all things under control. There's never going to have something come up in your conversation or your time with God where he's like, hey, can you put that on hold? I got to go deal with this and we'll get back later. Not going to happen. How about this question? Do I live in a way that pleases God? You know, that question in my marriage relationship came crashing down really quick in my life. And here's what happened. I had been single for a long time, really, really long time. And when Heather and I got together and we got married, I was just so excited to be married. And then all of a sudden something happened. I found out I was selfish. I mean, I'd never been selfish before and it must've been Heather's fault because I wasn't selfish until she came into my life. What happened is I had a person that I was in relationship with. I began to recognize that all of my life centered around me. And I only lived to think about myself and I only lived to please myself. And now I had someone that I truly and dearly loved that was in my life and I had to begin to think about them. And so it really, it really hurt my personal feelings to find out how selfish I was. I began to live my life thinking about her and wanting what's best for her. See, that's really how we express love to God. Do we live lives that please God? Or do we really have to deal with the selfishness of our heart that really we live to please ourselves and we only want what we want. And then when God steps into our life and, oh man, he has ideas about how we should live and what we should do. Do we rejoice in that or do we get mad? If you want to love God with all of you are, live in a way that pleases him. I heard a pastor say one time, <laughs> that if your God always agrees with you, it's not the God of the Bible that you were believing in. Sorry, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But if your God always agrees with you, if there's never a point where he says, hey, I, I don't think you should be doing that. Hey, I don't think that's healthy for you. Hey, I think we need to think about this differently. If God never challenges you in any way, I can tell you, you're not believing in the God of the Bible. Because here's the God of the Bible, Jesus, challenging the way that people think and feel and act. Because he wants them to come close. Do you live in a way that pleases God? Final question on how to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Do I tell God and others that I love him? When was the last time that you sat down and just told God how much you love him? When was the last time that you went to somebody else and talked to them and told them how much you love him? See, it would 
be really strange if I never told Heather that I loved her. We'd be more roommates than spouses. I had a lot of roommates when I was in college and seminary. I didn't make a regular habit of walking by. Bye, love you. <laughs> yeah, I'll talk to you when I get home, love you. Didn't do that. But it'd be super weird if I wasn't doing that with Heather, right? And how weird and awkward would it be if we got in a conversation and you asked me how Heather was and I was just like, mm, and just move on. And I never talked about her. And I never told you the cool things that I love about her and how I'm proud of her and all the, the things that I adore about her. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be weird? No, because unfortunately, that's how many of us are with our spouses. It's sad when I get into groups and I hear this because it happens and I've, I've been guilty of this before too. But we just turn in the session of, let, let me tell you all the things that I hate about my spouse. Oh, yours is bad? Let me tell you about how bad mine is. Be weird, wouldn't it? Here's the question. If that's normal for us to talk and tell the person that we love that we love them, and it's normal for us to go out into the world and talk to other people and tell them how we love our spouse, why don't we do that about God? Why all of a sudden is it weird and awkward and I'm, I'm going to be offensive? We don't care if people don't like the fact that we love our spouse. I'll be honest. I've talked a lot about Heather today and I don't care if you like it or not. Because I love her and I'm proud of her and I want you to know about it. I don't feel weird or awkward. I'm talking about something that she's done for me or something that she's done in my life. I don't feel weird and awkward talking about that. But when it comes to God, it all of a sudden gets weird. And the reason is so many times we look at him as a set of facts and not a person. Do you tell God how much you love him? Do you tell others? Jesus says this is the first and then he comes with a second. I love that. <laughs> it's not what the guy asked. Guy says, what's the most important? And Jesus says, well, I'm going to tell you. And he tells him. And then he says, but also, this is important. You're to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And there are no other commandments greater than these. Because here's the cool thing. When Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as ourself, he's quoting Leviticus 19, 18. It's another part of the commandments and it's to love your neighbor as yourself. But here's the thing. What Jesus is trying to get us to understand that when we truly love God and we are truly in a relationship with God and we are truly seeking to love him with all that we are, do you know what? You cannot help happen. You cannot help but for that love to radiate outside of you to other people. You can't keep it in. And so Jesus says, listen, all of the law, all of the prophets are bound up in these two things. If you love God with everything that you are, you're going to love people. You can't have one without the other. He says to love your neighbor as yourself. There was another time that Jesus taught this very similar message. It's in the book of Luke. And there was a guy in the crowd who decided to ask another question. Unfortunately, this was not a good question. Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy says, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? I don't know who my neighbor is. 
And Jesus tells the beautiful, wonderful story of the good Samaritan. And that took a a sharp left turn on the crowd that day because the Samaritans were nobody's neighbor. In fact, the Jews hated the Samaritans. And what Jesus said in that parable that day was this, everyone is your neighbor. Everyone. It doesn't matter where they're from. It doesn't matter what their skin color is. It doesn't matter what their religion is. It doesn't matter what they believe and it doesn't matter how they live. Everyone is your neighbor because everyone is born in the image of God. And if you're loving God with all that you are, it's not gonna be hard to find a neighbor. Because here's the cool thing that happens when we love God that way. His love is just looking to flow outside of us and to find somebody else. John, the disciple, was moved by Jesus' teaching on love. You read the gospel of John and that word love is used over and over and over and over and over and over again. In fact, all of his letters, even Revelation, have some form of love. In fact, John became so entranced and so overwhelmed by God's love, they call him the disciple of love. I mean, think about it. One of the greatest verses ever written, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In 1 John 3, 14, John gives another definition of love and here's what he says. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. God is love. He says that we love because God first loved us. One of the evidences, and we're always looking for evidence in our life that we follow Jesus, that we love Jesus, and a lot of times we do all the box checking. The evidence that we look for is that I join a church and did I get baptized and do I read my Bible and do I do this and do I do this and do I do this? And we forget the things that Jesus says. And here's what Jesus says. If you love me, you will love others. So one of the greatest ways that you can check in your life, and this, should not, this shouldn't be crazy, if God wants relationship with us, he wants us to have relationship to other people. If the evidence that we know God is a relationship, don't you think the evidence that God is working in our life is relationships with other people? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. I read something this week that just made me laugh. There was a skeptic who took this and said, this is the most selfish and irrational thing that Jesus could ever say. He's creating narcissists that we're supposed to put ourselves at the center of everything and we love ourselves and we center ourselves and we do everything about ourselves. He missed the point. What do we have to do before we can love other people? We have to love God with all that we are. And when we love God with all that we are, there is no way that we can be a narcissist and love ourselves. Here's what he's saying. This isn't about being selfish. This isn't about anything. In fact, what it's about is about moving ourselves out of the way 
And we start to look at other people as valid human beings. We recognize we are not the center of the universe and there are other people out there who have feelings. It doesn't take us 10 minutes in a day to see that there are people who don't live that way. I was at the grocery store and I was getting ready to check out and I was standing in line and I was waiting to go and all of a sudden somebody just cut right in front of me with this huge basket of groceries. And I said, uh, hey, um, I'm, I'm in line. Yeah, but I'm in a hurry. Sorry, I didn't know that trumped my space in the line. Didn't care about me, didn't care about what I was doing, didn't care the fact that I was there. I was a non-person to them. They were in a hurry and I was not there. We see it all throughout our life. And so here's what Jesus says, listen. When we love God, it flows out of us to everybody and we begin to realize there is a whole world populated with people that need love. And I've sent you. Well, how do, how do I love that way? You do the same thing you do with God. You find relationship. You empathize with someone. You listen to what's going on in their life. You care about them. You love them. Here's one that I know is going to be weird. You don't harm them. You don't mistreat them. You're not indifferent to them. I, I think one of the, the harshest things in the world is indifference. Where we withhold love and care because we don't care. You want to crush somebody? Be indifferent to them. Just be indifferent. I don't care. How about we don't hate them? We don't slander them. We don't hold grudges. We don't try to find revenge. We're always looking for ways to stand out in the world. You know, it changes. When I was in junior high, the Way to stand out is that, you know, you got the certain kind of guest jeans and you rolled them up two or three, four times at the bottom. You became cool because you were just like everybody else. You stood out. As you get older, we try to stand out by the stuff that we buy and the clothes that we wear and the people that we hang out with and the positions that we have. But here's the reality. If you really want to stand out in the world, love. You know what made Jesus radically different from everybody else other than that he was God? You know what made him different? He loved people and it showed. You know why we love Jesus? We look in the gospels and we see him reaching out to people just like us. We see him reaching out to people that nobody else cares about. We see him reaching out to people that everybody had given up on. We see him reaching out to people that nobody would be friends with. We see him reaching out to people who desperately needed him. And we say, oh, I love him for that. And you should. But you need to recognize if you're going to love him the way he wants you to love him, that that's what he's asking of you to do too. Jesus adds on to what he says here. He says, these are the two 
cutting through all the noise. This is what is most important. This is how we can be authentic in our walk with Jesus. It's so simple yet so hard, isn't it? I mean, it's so simple. Love God. Love people. But listen to what he says. Verse 31. There is no other commandment greater than these. This is the sum of the law and the prophets. This is the sum of everything that we need to know. This is the most important thing. And I love what happens. This guy listens to what Jesus says. And I feel like that he has the same response that I would have. Look at what he says in verse 32. The scribe said to him, right, teacher. <laughs> you have truly stated that God is one and there's no one else like him. And, and you, to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that this is more than burnt offering and sacrifice. I mean, here's what he said. He stands up and he says, Jesus, you're right. No duh. No duh. But, but here's what happens. The guy is so overwhelmed by the answer. Here's what he says. Yes, this is what I've been looking for. Yes, this makes sense. And here's how he shows that it makes sense. He says, this is greater than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices that we could give to you. The light went off. They were still offering burnt offerings and sacrifices. That was required in the law. But here's what that guy began to realize. That doesn't draw me close. That doesn't keep me in relationship. This does. And he says, this is better. This is better than sacrifice and offering. And here's what Jesus says. You're right. You're right. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Of God. Now at that answer, <laughs> when Jesus answered that, I love with the little note that Mark gives us, and no one dared ask him a question again. This guy comes to Christ and he asks a question and Jesus answers the question and it rejoices his heart. It's everything that he needed or wanted to know. And here's what Jesus said, because you understand, you're close. You're close to the kingdom. Hey, listen, if you're asking in your life what is most important, if you're asking in your life, how do I live out Christianity? Jesus has just answered you. And if you love God and you love people, you are close to the kingdom. Here's what he's saying. This is what kingdom people look like. This is what kingdom people look so as we close I want you to think about two things three things have you ever really thought about God's love for you we talk about it we sing about it we have classes on it there are books written about it but have you ever experienced it You ever had that moment when you recognize God's love for you and he draws you into that relationship with himself and now you experience that love? If you haven't, you can today. This is why we meet. Not to sing and not to do all that kind of, we, we, we meet so that people can have an opportunity to experience Jesus. All you have to do is admit that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus is God, that he lived a sinless and perfect life and he died for you. 
And if you confess your sin, he will forgive your sins, wipe you completely new, adopt you into his family and give you eternal, abundant, everlasting life. And you'll be in a relationship. Two, have you been struggling? Have you been struggling with your walk? Are you drowning in all the rules? Are you drowning in all the things that you're supposed to do and all the things that people tell you to do? How about you grab the lifeline that Jesus throws today? Love God, love people. Three, what needs to change in your life? We're all here because we need Jesus to work in our life. We're all here because we need to take another step with Jesus. What's yours? Please do not leave today the same way that you came in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for such a simple, pure, and powerful message. And I pray that you would speak to us today and you would help us to respond. Father, have your way. Have your way. Draw us to you. Let us experience your love. And let us begin a relationship with you. So Father, we pray that you would help us to say yes and take a step with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.